0: Hey everyone, welcome to TaxCast with Chelsea, where I give you a small dose of interesting tax news and answer commonly asked tax questions. Let's review these two topics today. First, how do you plan for your taxes when you receive, let's say, non-traditional, non-W2 income? This includes 1099 income, gambling, or even inheritances. Let's look at a couple examples today and how much you should potentially set aside. Also, could our tax code be revamped? A recent Wall Street Journal article discussed the Fair Tax Plan recently introduced in Congress. And I break it down why I think actually every taxpayer should be ready to debate change inside our nation's tax system. Okay, so let's talk about unplanned or what some might call untaxed income. And when I say untaxed, I mean income that's received in its entirety like a gross payment versus the W-2 wages that we typically receive after taxes. There seems to be some uncertainty and fear around this type of income. Most individuals, regardless if they have the cash to pay the tax bill, they typically don't want to be surprised knowing it's actually taxed when they file their tax return in the following spring. Typically, I see this with income that also comes in the form of 1099s, like an NEC or a MISC. They receive this for Uber or DoorDash or any other side hustle that typically they didn't plan on receiving a 1099. Then there's also the W-2Gs that come from lottery winnings or for winning jackpots at the slot machine at the casino. A lot of times the casinos will take state taxes, but they don't often take federal taxes. And then there is also income related to receiving an inheritance. I use this term loosely and without knowing a lot of detail, it's very hard to determine sometimes whether or not it will be taxed. But I'll discuss further on how you can differentiate that type of income as well. So how do you know when income should be taxed? A good and experienced tax professional will give you their favorite and most honest answer. It depends. In the world of side hustles that ask for a W-9, filling out that form, you know, with your social security number, you sign it, you put your name, you're most likely going to receive a 1099 if they pay you more than $600 at the end of the calendar year. Depending on the income and how it was earned, you may actually be able to write off expenses like business mileage, home office, or even some supplies that were used or purchased in order to complete the job. Now, in the case of like a car dealership salesman who receives his normal W-2 and then another 1099 for hitting his quota, that's also reported on a 1099 miscellaneous form. It's very common in the auto industry and they classify these as incentive payments from the manufacturer. The difference being that this is taxed only for income tax purposes and not the additional FICA taxes like you see on self-employment income. In case there's any confusion, if your extra income qualifies for some tax planning, the Internal Revenue Code does say that you should report all income, regardless if you get a 1099 or not. Other income types that we see where people are typically surprised at year-end is gambling income. Most of my clients who win are not really surprised that they owe taxes after receiving their winnings from the casino explicitly because they typically ask for your social security number, your name, and your address to send you a W-2 at the end of the year. The bigger surprise typically comes at the realization that much of their losses won't be used to offset the income. So it's kind of a double whammy effect in losing money. You first don't get to report all the losses, and at the same time, you have to pay some taxes back to the federal and state tax man. How can this be? Well, typically, gambling W-2s are reported on Schedule 1 of income on the federal tax return. The losses have to get reported on a separate form called a Schedule A, where you itemize your deductions. And you can only deduct up to your winnings if you are itemizing, So typically when you itemize, you're taking your state taxes, mortgage interest, charity, plus at that time you could take your gambling losses, and they would all have to be greater than $25,900 for most married taxpayers in 2022. And that simply does not happen for most people. Lastly, there is usually questions around the type of an inheritance income. And when I say inheritance, this is more of a colloquial term most people use when they receive cash from a deceased family member. If the income was received from the sale of appreciated assets, like stock or a home that was sold, then more than likely you received a step up in basis and there is no taxes if very little to be paid if everything was distributed pretty quickly after death. However, there could be money sitting in an IRA that gets distributed and is taxed or even a potential K-1 received from an estate or trust in which this inheritance is in. Often in that case, there's a trustee or a court appointed representative to help navigate the beneficiaries on what to expect and on what they should receive from the estate or trust. Do not hesitate to ask your tax advisor and discuss with them before assuming something is not taxable. There has to be an understood fact pattern before any determination can be made anyway. Okay, so typically the next question is, how much should you set aside for tax time? If your typical highest tax bracket is 22 to 24% and you live in the Midwest, like in a taxable state, go ahead and set aside about 30% of that extra income. On income received for self-employment activities, like if you receive income on a 1099 NEC, go ahead and set aside about 35% to account for those additional employer and employee side of FICA taxes. If you're in a lower tax bracket, that might be overkill but it's safe at least and you'll be pleasantly surprised to have more in savings after you pay your tax bill. If you're in a higher tax bracket, then you probably should already be working with a tax professional to review your exact situation, as there's probably other planning and advisory opportunities that might benefit you. So why would you want to plan and not just wait and pay at the end of the year? Basically, you wanna avoid underpayment penalties and then also make sure you don't spend all that cash The IRS reminds us that the U.S. income tax system is a pay-as-you-go system, which means that you pay income tax as you earn it or receive it throughout the year. You can do this by either adjusting your withholding or making estimated tax payments, and they provide these vouchers online if you ever need to download them. If you didn't pay enough tax throughout the year by either making the payments or having more withheld from your paycheck, your W-2 income, then you may pay a penalty for underpayment of estimated tax. Generally, most taxpayers will avoid this penalty if they owe less than $1,000 in tax after subtracting their withholding and refundable credits, or if they paid withholding and estimated taxes of at least 90% of the tax for the current year, or 100% of the tax shown on the prior year return, whichever is smaller. So a quick recap on how to plan. Don't spend everything you have right away and go ahead and make a plan. Also understand how much in total to set aside and what type of income it is. Make sure you can change your withholdings or go ahead and pay in estimates throughout the year. You can actually pay in estimates online if you don't want to download a voucher and most states have this available as well. If you're still unsure, you should probably call a tax professional. The sooner the better. I typically interview new clients between May and October of the previous year before filing season if I choose to work with them or they want to work with me. Finding a non-busy tax professional during tax season is like finding a mechanic with no work to do. As I've alluded to before, the U.S. tax system needs a serious overhaul in how we assess, collect, and comply with our tax code. The IRS's last three years of performance is only the beginning to a new era of what I think will be a continued abysmal delivery of services and often what feels unjust in application of audits, meaning they will continue to squeeze the little guy. The private sector would never tolerate such outcomes as what we've seen at the hands of our government because they'd have no consumer to sell to and simply no investors pumping capital into a failing organization. Alas, we still have the IRS, which is why I wanted to discuss a different tax proposal recently introduced in Congress that would fund our government. On January 9th of 2023, the congressman from Georgia, Buddy Carter, introduced a fair tax bill to the House of Representatives, which is completely different in how we typically think about tax assessment. His proposal focused on consumption taxes rather than an income tax. So think of a national sales tax similar to what the states collect at the local level. According to the congressional summary, the bill imposes a national sales tax on the use or consumption in the U.S. of taxable property or services in lieu of the current income tax system, its payroll taxes, and the estate and gift taxes. The rate of the sales tax, he suggested, would be 23% in 2025, with adjustments to the rate in subsequent years. He also said there would be exemptions from the tax for used and intangible property or for property or services purchased for business, export, or investment purposes, and for state government functions. Under the bill, family members who are lawful U.S. residents would also receive a monthly sales tax rebate based on the criteria related to the family size and poverty guidelines. The states also would have the responsibility for administrating, collecting, and remitting the sales tax to the Department of Treasury. Tax revenues are to be collected among the general revenue, the old age and survivors insurance trust fund, so think Social Security, the disability insurance trust fund, and then the hospital insurance trust fund, the federal supplementary medical insurance trust fund. So, to quickly summarize, the tax reform he suggested would still have exemptions, it would also give allowances for low-income families, and then the states would also be responsible for administering and collecting uh, and remitting of this national consumption tax. A quick example to give a good comparison of what this would actually look like, if you are a taxpayer making $100,000 a year on a W-2, you're single, your typical tax bill after it's all said and done, is $21,910. And that's just your portion. That doesn't include the employer's portion of those 7.65% of Medicare and Social Security taxes. So $21,910 already comes out of your check, and that is before any other deductions or state income tax. So if you spend, on average, $5,000 a month, we'll say $60,000 a year, on your consumption needs, that would amount to about thirteen thousand eight hundred dollars a year in consumption taxes. So that's about nine thousand dollars less than the typical or typical system. The break-even point on a similar, comparable analysis would be if you spent ninety-five thousand two hundred sixty-one dollars, that would equal the same amount of tax that you are currently paying. Again, on a hundred thousand-dollar W-2 as a single person. So this would be kind of hard to do if, depending on what state you lived in, because you can't spend more than what you make, and then if you have other retirement or other benefits being deducted from your payroll. So while a combined sales tax rate seems overwhelming at first, especially when you add in the state side, it's important to remember that having numbers to compare what a consumption tax would do, it actually describes more of what the actual cash impact would be to you as a taxpayer. Right now, the biggest issue with our current tax system is the fact it's so complex. The Internal Revenue Code makes it hard for an everyday taxpayer to take advantage of all of the tax laws in the same year as maybe somebody who has a tax professional working with them. Because the more advice you need for the more complex issues. So why did they make these complex rules in the first place? Well, we know that special interests and lobbyists for too long have directed and guided our complex tax system through congressional support. Something like this could eliminate special credits for forms, for special forms required to receive tax incentives, um, like for housing or health or fuel credits or energy credits or just anything special that's required um, if you're going to receive a benefit from the government on our current income tax system. And the best overhaul would really be one that achieves simplicity. The less IRS agents needed to work through issues that are all caused by complex tax code. And then also to have with simplicity, we'd also see better efficiency in operations. So in this case, a state managed operation would be decentralizing its authority. Perhaps a consumption tax could potentially provide a solution that helps people understand at the time of purchase what their tax liability is, but it also puts everyday people in direct competition with the same knowledge at their fingertips as the millionaire down the street. So obviously there is still much to be debated, but we should all still engage in this discussion to develop a better U.S. tax system. And with the solution in mind, we can change the formula to achieve better results and a better experience as taxpayers. So what better way to, than to start dialoguing and communicating these ideas with our congressional representatives? Thanks again for listening and you can find today's links in the show notes below from today's podcast. If you like this podcast, then please hit subscribe and add a five-star rating so that other people can find and listen as well. Feel free to connect with me and let me know your ideas for a future tax cast.